welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series podcast brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Sarah Farris from the University of Chicago talking about disorders of the female urethra. Okay, good morning, everybody. It's 9 a.m. My name is Carissa Chu. I'm a urology resident at UCSF. Um, And it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Sarah Ferris uh, from the University of Chicago, who's going to be talking to us this morning about disorders of the female urethra. Uh, So welcome, Dr. Ferris. Um, And without any further ado, please go ahead. Um, I'll jump in in the last 15 minutes or so uh, to field some questions as they're coming in through the Q&A. So go right ahead. Thank you very much. All right, guys. Well, thank you very much for having me. This is such a great thing that you've put together to um, keep resident education going. Um, I'm at University of Chicago. I'm um, the associate program director right now, and I'm going to be starting in a couple months, the um, residency program director. So residency education is obviously incredibly important to me. Um, I did a GORS fellowship, so my uh, focus is on reconstruction. So a lot of the topics that I normally cover, it look like we're, have been covered or are covered, being covered. So this is one um, that I think is just interesting. It's um, things that can be a little bit more obscure, but um, hopefully you enjoy it. And it was fun for me because I got to go through some of my more fun cases that I've done in the past. So the talk is about disorders of the female urethra. I have nothing to disclose. So we'll start with the big topic, of course, first, which is urethral diverticulum. So to give you some background, Um, The exact etiology is unknown, but they're thought to be acquired. The periurethral glands are the site of origin. Those glands are going to be located primarily within the dorsolateral submucosa of the urethra, and they drain into um, the ducts and typically the distal one-third of the urethra. Potential etiologies are thought to be trauma from childbirth or recurrent infections or inflammations, which go into the periurethral glands and it causes some obstruction, they get a suburethral abscess, and then it ruptures into the urethral lumen, and then you get this uh, urethral diverticulum formation. They're not very common. It's gonna be about one to 6% of adult women. The definition is an epithelialized cavity with with a single osteum to the urethral lumen of variable size. And it can have a bunch of different histologies. So it can be columnar, cuboidal, stratified squamous, transitional or fibrous tissue. The um, anatomy is that it's within the periurethral fascia of the urethra, and I'll have some nice pictures of this later. Um, It's typically centered at the middle third of the urethra with the ost in a posterior lateral location. And again, I'll have some pictures of that. It can, these diverticulums can extend distally to the urethral meatus, um, which I actually have seen, um, or approximately to the bladder neck and under the trigone. Um, Multiple loculations or diverticula are possible. And then again, 90% of those osteums, so the connection to the urethra, are gonna be posterior laterally in the mid or distal urethra. So when you do your cystoscopy, that's where you're gonna be really focusing your attention. So the presentation is going to be, it's a wide range, age range, it's going to be 30 to 70 year olds. When we're teaching this, there's the classic three Ds, dysuria, dyspareunia, and postvoid dribbling. But this combination is going to be rarely seen, and typically the presentation is often very variable. Um, and interestingly, the size of the diverticulum does not correlate with actual symptoms. 
So symptoms include, you can have voiding symptoms, right? So irritative or obstructive voiding symptoms. Some people do have post-void tribbling. Um, they can complain of incontinence. They may have pain or dyspareunia. Um, recurrent infections is another big one. Sometimes they actually can feel the mass in the anterior vagina. So you can have this anterior vaginal wall mass. Other times you may have some vaginal discharge, hematuria, or they can be completely asymptomatic. So when you do a physical exam, you're gonna palpate the anterior vaginal wall for any masses or tenderness. Um, most are gonna be low of these are gonna be located over the mid and proximal portion of the urethra, but they can be anterior to the urethra, extend around the urethral lumen. Um, and I have some nice pictures of that from MRIs or towards the bladder neck. Um, one of the big things that you wanna do, and it's not gonna be perfect, but you wanna evaluate for a mass or stones within the diverticulum. So you're gonna feel for any sort of masses. Um, this is just an example of milking it here. You can get prelid drainage, um, permeatus, and then um, you wanna also be looking for any stress urinary incontinence, because that's gonna affect your, um, what you end up doing surgically. And obviously you wanna do that with a relatively full bladder, which you know in our clinics can sometimes be challenging because we usually get PVRs when they come in the door, we have them pee for a UA. Um, you also wanna look for vaginal prolapse, vaginal atrophy, and then the vaginal length um, and introitus because they're all gonna affect, again, your surgical management. The differential diagnosis, um, I believe someone's gonna be doing a talk more on these later, so I just ran through them, but you can have a skin gland or abscess. So this is what a skin gland is gonna look like here when it's got the cyst here or abscess. They're perineatal. They're gonna actually distort the urethral meatus and they should not communicate with the urethral lumen. They can be painful. Um, adenocarcinoma has been reported. So interestingly, these are homologous with the prostate, so it can cause uh, elevated PSA. And then um, to treat these, you'll think about aspiration, marsupialization, IND, or excision. Other things that you wanna look for are things like urethral caruncles, which we see quite frequently. Um, they're around the meatus. It's a red mass covered with mucosa at the urethral meatus. They're related to urethral prolapse and they can be painful or cause spotting. Typical treatment include, um, include topical estrogens and sitz mats, or if they're atypical or symptomatic, you wanna consider excision. Oh, this was one I had. Intriguingly, this is actually a urethral caruncle. It was about four centimeters long on a woman. So sometimes they can have an interesting presentation. Other things can be um, urethral prolapse. And that's a circumferential herniation of the urethral mucosa at the urethral meatus. So all of this, all the way around. They can be asymptomatic, painful. They can have spotting or urinary symptoms. Um, it's generally with postmenopausal women due to estrogen uh, deficiency. Though occasionally you can see them actually in pre-pubital girls due to valsalva, constipation, or loose attachments. Again, treatment, topical estrogen or sitz bath, but often they require surgical um, excision. And this is what, you know, after the removal, um, this is one of my patients and this is what it looked like afterwards. Some other ones include vaginal lyomyoma, vaginal Walsmith cysts, or Gardner's duct cysts. So vaginal lyomyoma are benign tumors of the vaginal wall and they arise from smooth muscle. They're very, very rare. They'll be non-tender, smooth and round, firm anterior vaginal wall mass. Um, they're estrogen dependent and they may actually regress with menopause. 
and you can do a transvaginal surgical excision. Vaginal wall cysts um, arise from multiple cell types and it's just a simple excision. The Gardner duct cyst is going to be an anterior lateral vaginal wall mass. There are actually mesonephric remnants, and so it's important because this can drain duplicated system um, of upper pole ectopic ureters. Um, an upper tract evaluation is going to be recommended, and then there's different surgeries you can do, including observation or aspiration, sclerotherapy, excision or marsupialization, but you really have to tailor your approach if it's associated with a renal moiety. Um, some other kind of differential diagnosis, but some other weird things I've seen. This is a woman who had really bad, um, a really bad cystocele, and um, it was a bladder diverticulum that actually went down into the cystocele. So you can see here is right between her trigone, and then it came down into the cystocele itself. So again, you can see that dropping down. We actually did a, uh, a bladder diverticulectomy through via cystos, like vaginal approach with the cystocele repair. So that was an interesting case. Um, this is another woman I saw who had a um, cystectomy and neobladder and she had a vaginal wall lesion. And um, you can see here it's actually um, a vag it's like a hernia of fat. So we were able to just do a simple excision of this. So sometimes you may find some interesting vaginal wall lesions um, that aren't typically described. So I'm gonna, just to run through, that's the background, and to run through um, how you work it up, what things look like, the treatments and everything like that, and go through a case study um, and take you through kind of one patient that I saw um, and kind of go through the whole workup together. So this initial woman, she um, was a 63-year-old female. She had a history of heart disease and was high risk, very, very high risk. I think it was over 11% mortality risk for surgery. Um, lots of other comorbidities, big time smoker, and she'd had recurrent UTIs, and she was admitted for AKI with a creatinine of 4.8 and bilateral hydronephrosis. She had gross hematuria, incomplete bladder emptying, and required Foley catheter placement. She had been taught CIC in the past by her urogynecologist, but she was unable to perform this. And um, on exam, she had an indurated urethrovaginal septum. And this was her CT scan without contrast, that was about a month prior. So you can see before seeing her. So you can see pretty significant bilateral and hygienephrosis, and this is her bladder here. Um, she had a descended bladder, and they described a um, five by four centimeter right adonexal map, mass without lymphadenopathy. And there is no mention of urethral pathology here. But if you look at, I mean, it does look a little bit funny, but nothing specifically remarkable. So, Urethral diverticulum, your general workup, you're going to want to get a UA in urine culture. It's important that your urine is sterile prior to any operating room procedures. Um, you can entertain a urine cytology if um, they describe hematuria. Sometimes you may want to get urodynamics and that's especially if they have significant lower urinary tract symptoms. And uh, you can assess for stress urinary incontinence, which is pretty common. It's about 50%. Um, you can also do video urodynamics to assess the diverticular anatomy and bladder neck competence and then cystoscopy. So as I mentioned, um, you're going to be looking for, the, you want to do a good cystoscopy of the bladder, try to get a sense of where the trigone is, make sure there's no lesions in the bladder. And then you really want to do, it, and this is what's challenging, is you want to do a really good examination of the urethra. And the problem is, is these typically in the mid urethra, and so your flow's not great, um, depending on what scope you use. And so um, 
generally the I find the flexible cystoscope very useful because where you're looking and where the water actually comes out where your irrigation comes out is roughly at the same level or a rigid female cystoscope and the reason for that is if you use a male cystoscope if you guys ever look at it where the fluid comes out is about a centimeter a centimeter a half back from where your actually actual lens is and the female urethra is so short that all that fluid's just going to extravasate and you're not going to get a good distension. So I find flexible scopes work very well and then you can um, vaginally compress the bladder neck or you can actually um, compress right at the meatus which I find useful because it allows that nice distension and you can also palpate the diverticulum if you are having trouble finding it and look for any discharge or purulent discharge that comes through. But this is what it's going to generally look like here. That's what your os will look like. So it's it's not um, the most obvious findings. You want to do a really good exam. Um, using imaging, VCUGs aren't great. It has very, a wide range of sensitivity, and it's reliant on the patient voiding. It can also underestimate the size and complexity. Um, if a woman can't go to the bathroom on the table, then they can do a post-void um, x-ray to see if there's um, a distension of the pouch with the contrast. The double balloon positive pressure urethrogamy is rarely performed in practice anymore. Um, transvaginal ultrasounds are an option, but they may not provide enough detail for surgical planning. So the real recommendation is for MRIs, which give you great anatomic detail. They're non-invasive. They have um, a high T2 signal and you can assess for cancer. So going back to that patient, my case study, um, she had urodynamics done because of her severe lower urinary tract symptoms and her incomplete bladder emptying. And you can see here on urodynamics that she has these phasic DOs here. And her capacity was 243. She wasn't able to empty completely. She only, and then her PVR was actually, um, she very much had incomplete bladder emptying, was about 239. And interestingly, her Qmax is about 1.4 mLs per second and her P-data Qmax was very high, so it's 35.8. For a woman, that's very high, and we'll talk a little bit more about this later, but um, so this is a, a sign of she's obstructed. We did, I'm sorry I don't have pictures from her cystoscopy, but we did a cystoscopy, and it showed erythema at the right side of the bladder neck with this adhering white lesion um, with friable urethra and pore sphincteric coaptation. Uh, urine cytology was actually negative, but in the meantime, she developed new incontinence and had passage of blood slash tissue per vagina concerning for new fistula formation. This was her CT scan. So you can see significant dilation of her urethra with this lobulated periurethral mass and increased T2 signal that was about four centimeters. It was possibly fluid. Um, the abnormal signal extended from the proximal urethra inferiorly, and she also had, you can see this urethral vaginal fistula here, right here. And then here's her fistula again. I'm coming down through it. So you can see this, just this periurethral mass here. And again, right here. So treatment for urethral diverticulums. Um, if they're asymptomatic and they want to avoid surgery um, or poor operative candidates, the big thing is counseling. So there is about a 10% risk of malignant transformation. Um, patients can be, and these, these malignancies can be asymptomatic and not seen on imaging. 
Um, the types of cancer can be adenocarcinoma, transitional, or squamous cell. And the big thing, again, is just counseling about that risk of malignancy. Um, if they have recurrent infections, you can treat with suppressive antibiotics. Um, if they find that they're having post-void dribbling, they can kind of milk the anterior uh, vagina to express that fluid, which will help to reduce that. And there's no really known regimen for surveillance for, to make sure that they don't have develop cancer. This is a rare enough disease that um, you just, I think, in my opinion, just consider periodic physical exams and getting intermittent MRIs as well. So surgical management for urethrodiverticulums, um, you want to offer to symptomatic patients, and the typical one is going to be a urethrodiverticulectomy. For distal lesions, you consider you can consider a transvaginal marsupialization, which you see here. It's called a spent stucket procedure, but it cannot extend proximally because there's a risk of um, damaging the sphincter. And then um, they also they kind of vaginally void basically. So you you want to make sure it's distal enough that it'll come out without getting vaginal trapping, um, and you want to avoid in sexually active women as well. So when you're doing urethrodiverticulum and just operative considerations in general, um, you want to look for vaginal atrophy and the elasticity of the tissue. So if it looks like they have vaginal atrophy, you want to consider vaginal um, estrogen for a few weeks prior to the operating room. Um, these can be, especially if they may require some vaginal flaps and reconstruction. If they're having troubles with recurrent urinary tract infections, you want to consider prophylactic antibiotics prior to the operating room. You're gonna wanna look at the vaginal length and um, capacity. So it's gonna affect your surgical exposure and that may require an episiotomy because you need to be able to have decent visualization. And then a big piece of it is stress incontinence as well because you can do a concommitment anti-incontinence procedure, um, which can also give you a really nice interposition layer as well. And then look for any signs of prolapse. So types of um, diverticulum, this is what we can, would consider a simple diverticulum here. You can have saddlebag or horseshoe, which is where it starts to wrap around or come up or down. Um, so this is what a saddlebag or horseshoe would look like. And then sometimes they can be circumferential. So you can see this goes all the way around the urethra. And these are much more complex to try to excise because you want to try to remove all of the diverticulum as much as possible. So your general surgical, surgical technique, you're gonna do an inverted U or midline incision per preference. Um, you'll mobilize your vaginal wall flaps. You're gonna do a horizontal periurethral fascial incision and then mobilization of that. Um, you wanna remove the entire urethral diverticulum and then do a running watertight urethral closure at the ostium with absorbable suture. Um, then you'll have a multi-layered non-orbalapping closure with absorbable suture and the goal is preservation of incontinence of course. So the patient will be in lithotomy position. Um, I use a lone star retractor which you can see here and then a weighted vaginal speculum. You can see the diverticulum here kind of bulging out underneath and then this is the Foley catheter in the urethra. Some people do a suprapubic tube if it's desired. You'll want um, to do a careful hydrodistension. And then um, when you do the um, inverted U incision, it's towards the base near the distal urethra, and then nice and wide to get a good um, vasculite flap here. 
So this is where you develop your vaginal flap. So this is your periurethral fascia here. And then these are gonna be your vaginal flaps here. And then this one coming down here. The goal is to preserve the periurethral fascia and avoid entering, entering the diverticulum. And I apologize, this picture is super grainy, um, but you wanna open the periurethral fascia. So here you can see our debakies. This is a piece of the periurethral fascia. This is the other piece. And then this is the um, vaginal flaps. You can see you can get a nice um, periurethral fascia uh, mobilization. And then this is the diverticulum itself bulging out. Sometimes if that periurethral fascia isn't robust or um, and not present, then you'll need to consider a tissue interposition flap or an autologous sling because you want to avoid a urethrovaginal fistula. So you want to dissect out the diverticulum to its os. In general, a lot of your dissection is going to be with it as much as possible keeping the fluid in it. It helps to show you the tissue planes um, and will aid with your dissection. At some point though, and especially if it's a horseshoe where it's coming around anteriorly and there's some arms to it, you can open that diverticulum up and actually put your finger into the diverticulum and then do further um, dissection on that. It'll help you to figure out where things are when coming around. Because sometimes you have to get up, you think about it, the os is really small and your diverticulum's bigger, and you have to get up and around it and then bring it back and try to get and peel it off of the urethra itself to get right to that os. So the goal is to remove the entire mucosalized surface to prevent recurrence. Um, when they're circ circumferential, they can be much more complex and it may require a partial urethral resection and complete um, complex reconstruction. So the goal is a tension-free, vertical, watertight urethral closure with running absorbable suture. So if you think about avoiding overlapping suture lines, your periurethral fascia incision is like this. So if you can do it vertically, even though you worry about obviously as long as it's not too big of a urethrotomy, I should, should put that caveat because you don't want to narrow the lumen too much. But if it's not much and it's a nice small os, you're just going to close it vertically because then you're going to do your horizontal um, periurethral fascial closure. So you won't, you avoid overlapping suture lines as much as possible or the tissue flap interposition with like a marcius flap if you don't have good periurethral fascia. And then you're going to close your vaginal wall with absorbable suture. And especially if you do that um, inverted U, you really, it's going to flap up and over where your incision is. So that's a really nice, and your vaginal closure, which is a really nice way of, um, of getting that closed without, again, to try to minimize the risk for urethral vaginal fistula as much as possible. If you decide to place a pubal vaginal sling, um, it's recommended to do autologous tissue. You don't want mesh up against that fresh repair. And the, I think the really important thing to remember is you want to pre-place the sling prior to opening the periurethral fascia so that you, you don't want to have to do cystoscopy after um, the urethral repair. And um, this way you can look for your trocars, make sure everything's okay. And, um, and then you just leave it dangling down. Um, and then I like to tension the sling after closing that periurethral fascia. Um, Postoperatively, you'll do vaginal packing and then um, admission for antibiotics um, for 24 hours. And then um, next day, the vaginal packing will come out. And then you want to give antispasmatics to avoid bladder spasms while they have that catheter in so that you don't get the leakage of the urine around the catheter, which could cause some leak. Um, consider prophylactic antibiotics where the catheter is in place. 
And um, I generally like to do a pericatheter rug or a VCUG around two to three weeks to make sure there's no leak postoperatively. So um, the special considerations for stressed urinary incontinence, um, the autologous sling is recommended and avoid synthetic slings. Be very, you know, just have to watch out for malignant transformation because there's about a 10% malignant transformation risk rate. There's no consensus on treatment for uh, cancers in the diverticulum, but there are very high rate recurrence rates with local treatment. You can consider adjuvant radiation and it may require a, a cystectomy with urethrectomy for these patients. Um, if they have stones in the diverticulum, there's no special treatment required. So it's very successful, um, but obviously with those more complex diverticulum, you're going to have lower rates of success. Urinary incontinence is going to be, has within the literature, is about 1 to 16%. Um, recurrent urinary tract infections can happen afterwards still. You can get recurrence of the diverticulum, and that's ranged between 1 and 25%. One of the big things you worry about is a urethrovaginal fistula, and that's going to be 1 to 8%. Um, you can also get urethral strictures, which is going to be, again, 0 to 5%. Um, there is a risk for bladder or ureteral injury, especially if it's moving up under the trigone, which is another reason an MRI is nice and your cystoscopy, because if it is doing that, you can pre-place um, ureteral catheters or something like that just to help you to uh, minimize that risk. And then there's also risk for, of course, vaginal scarring, narrowing, or dyspareunia. So for my case study, um, she, because of that abnormal tissue at her bladder neck, she underwent a TURBT, um, which showed the circumferential tissue that was indurated at the bladder neck with inflammatory changes and obviously that urethrovaginal facial concern. Unfortunately, her pathology came back as um, invasive mucinous adenocarcinoma involving the bladder, and the tumor invaded the muscularis propria. So she went um, to the operating room for an anterior exit with urethrectomy and ileoconduit, and it showed this large urethral and bladder neck mass, um, which again was that mucinous adenocarcinoma invading into the muscularis propria. Um, and the adjacent vaginal wall and mucosa. And unfortunately, she also had lymphadenopathy in the pelvic lymph nodes. So she was a PT4A. Um, she did well postoperatively, was referred to medical oncology and radiation oncology. But within two months, she had um, new metastatic bone lesions. And there's no standardized treatment for urinary tract adeno, but they're treated with colorectal-like chemotherapy regimen and radiation. And given her rapidly progressing symptomatic disease and poor performance status, unfortunately, she had to be enrolled in hospice. So um, I don't know if this is how it's been going, but I'm just going to take a quick peek at the Q&As because I was going to move on to urethral strictures. Um, I probably, to answer for a Gardner's doxis, what kind of upper track evaluation would I perform? Would a renal ultrasound be enough? You could consider it, but I think uh, you're looking for ectopic portions to the ureter. So I think a CT urogram would actually be pretty useful to help delineate the ureteral anatomy. And then another question that you'll perform autologous sling for stress incontinence at the time of diverticulectomy, but what about patients who have a history of remote urethral diverticulectomy and go on to develop stress? Would you still recommend autologous sling or would you use mesh? Um, 
I think if it's a remote history and they've healed up well, you could offer them um, both types of sling and it would be up to patient preference. And then for a circumferential diverticulum, would you take a vaginal approach or go from robo above robotically? Um, personally, I actually have one of these coming up and that other anterior one, that one that was circumferential was one of my patients and I did it um, transvaginally um, for me. That was the approach that I took. Um, for patients who choose observation, do you typically do yearly or every other year MRI? How do you follow with imaging? Yeah, so I have one lady who's in her mid 80s and she didn't want anything. And she's had it for, I think like 11 or more years. So I've been seeing her annually for a physical exam. And then MRIs, I think for her, I elected to do like annual or every year or two. That's exactly right. I think that's all the questions. Let me see if any others have come in. Hopefully my audio is doing okay. If it's not, please let me know. Your audio is great. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I did not do a MR urogram. I did, I'm doing routine MR pelvic MRIs for them with contrast, yeah. All right. I figured I'd do some of these now because I think it helps with the topic. So if you guys are good, um, I will move over to um, female urethral strictures. Sounds perfect. All right, so um, female urethral strictures are incredibly rare. Um, so I'm gonna go through some of the more recent studies on them um, just to give you an idea of what some of the literature is out there. So the incidence, um, we're just gonna start with bladder outlet obstruction. So the incidence of bladder outlet obstruction is three to 8% for women. And within this population, um, urethral strictures are only gonna be four to 13%. That's like of the three to 8%. So again, it's the true incidence is about 0.1 to 1%. It's very, very rare. The etiology is generally gonna be iatrogenic. So TRBTs actually can have a 4% um, risk of uh, urethr urethral stricture, um, recurrent urethral dilations, um, a traumatic catheterization, a prior fistula or diverticulum repair, and anti-incontinent surgery can all lead to these. Um, they may have a traumatic injury, radiation, uh, vulvar dystrophy or lichen sclerosis, and then recurrent infections. So the presentation, um, voiding symptoms correlate poorly, and I'll go through some of the studies that looked at that. Um, it runs the gamut of lower urinary tract symptoms. So urinary frequency and urgency, dysuria, um, urinary hesitancy, weak or slow stream, dribbling. Um, they may feel like they don't empty well. They may have recurrent urinary tract infections, not surprisingly, urinary incontinence, but rarely they have retention or hydronephrosis or AKI. On physical exam, um, you wanna look for the position of the bladder neck um, as much as possible relative to like what the urethra looks like. Um, any sort of prolapse, you're gonna look for vaginal scars, masses, um, atrophy or lichen sclerosis. And then the workup, 
So it's, it's difficult to diagnose because the symptoms, you know, you think about how many women we see in clinic who have overactive bladder symptoms or have um, stress incontinence, or maybe they have to strain to pee. Um, and so many of those, because female urethra stricture is so rare, we usually are going down and working that up rather than doing the stricture first. So, or, you know, getting a sense of that first. So it can be difficult to diagnose. Um, it's generally based on symptoms and having difficult instrumentation. These strictures are typically in the distal third of the urethra or at the meatus. So some of the studies, and this is what, it's just interesting information to have. Um, this group tried to apply the AUA symptom score to women and then correlate it with urodynamic studies. So they had 587 urodynamic studies on women. Um, six and a half percent of those women had bladder outlet um, obstruction defined as a Q max of less than 12 mLs per second. Um, and then they compared those women with that of those obstruction to um, women who had sphincteric incontinence and asymptomatic healthy women. So the, among women with the bladder outlet obstruction or slow voiding, the mean symptom score, AUA symptom score was significantly higher. So it was about 15.8 versus 10.3. Um, it was classified as severe in 34% of patients versus 7% of patients with sphincteric incontinence. So they do seem to, it does seem like these, it's more bothersome to them, we'll put it that way. Um, but they did not have any correlation between AUA symptom scores and objective urodynamics parameters. So cystoscopy, this is where you're really, or if you're trying to pass a catheter, it doesn't go easily, this is where you're going to see it. Um, and then again, we kind of talked about using that flexible scope and um, providing a little bit of compression around the urethromeatus to try to give that good distension of the urethra to get an idea of it. Now, it's always important to remember, and it's the same thing for men, that when you're doing a cystoscopy for a stricture, all you are seeing is that maybe first millimeter or two, and you don't know what's behind it. And there are other things that could be going on. So um, maybe there's, maybe they have a fistula that you don't fully realize, or maybe they have cancer behind it. So it is important to complete your workup. But also remember that the stricture may be very short or it might be really long, which is going to affect your operative management. So studies you can do, urodynamics, um, that same group that looked at the bladder outlet obstruction published this. There is no standard definition of bladder outlet obstruction for women. Um, basically, you're going to find a persistent low Qmax of less than what they said was less than 12 mLs per second on Euroflow and a high PDAT at QMAX. So they said that that's gonna be greater than 20, which is decently high for women because we're usually low pressure voiders. Again, they had very, a broad range of symptoms. So 63% had mixed or lower urinary tract symptoms. There were about 30% were irritative and only 8% were just obstructive. So again, these can be difficult to diagnose. Um, as mentioned earlier, of the 587 women, about six and a half had bladder outlet obstruction. So it was 38, so pretty low. Um, in this group, so this is kind of interesting, you'll see the next study, 50% um, had had an anti-incontinence surgery or pelvic organ prolapse um, surgery. About 13% had urethral stricture, 8% primary bladder net obstruction, 5% pelvic floor dysfunction, and 5% detrusor sphincter dyssynergia.
So this is interesting because this is another study looking at um, urodynamics in this population. And they saw radiographic evidence of bladder outlet narrowing plus a, this was their definition, plus a PDET of greater than 35. So in this study, they defined it as 20 here. Their um, PDET at QMAX was 20. And here they say it's 35. Um, and they defined their QMAX as less than 15 mLs per second or a PDET greater than 40. So 95% to them have more of the irritative voiding symptoms with urinary frequency and 57% describe difficulty voiding. Of 207 women, they found that 51% it was from pelvic floor dysfunction, 27% um, from urethral sphincter obstruction, about 9% bladder net obstruction, and only about 7% were urethral stricture, um, and 6.3% were bladder outlet obstruction and pelvic organ prolapse. So some other studies to think about, so uh, just to summarize that, basically, again, it's hard to diagnose. The, um, the uh, AUA symptom score isn't great. You're gonna be looking at more people, women who describe their symptoms as more severe. And urodynamic study, it's, it's sort of helpful. You basically will have a pretty low QMAX, so low flow rate, and then a higher PDET. And to me, that would be anything over really 20 to 30, you're gonna be starting to be suspicious. Now, one of the things to consider is what is the etiology? So going back to that, it can be pelvic floor dysfunction. I mean, 51% was that. Um, and you can also have detrusor sphincter dyssynergia. So I think it's really important to take a good history, do a good pelvic exam to assess their pelvic floor, um, find out have they had prior surgeries before, have they had urethral dilations before, a traumatic catheterization, um, any sort of um, mesh procedure, pelvic organ prolapse procedure, um, have they had, um, a fistula repair or diverticulectomy, you really want to get a very, very good history to correlate with their symptoms, do a good, your problem, you may do urodynamics, um, and that'll help you really put the picture together and give you an idea, and then if you need to, you do a cystoscopy, of course, which will give you the definitive diagnosis. Um, other studies, the voiding cystourethrogram, it'll give you, it can help with some information about stricture location and length, but one of the problems is that like there's a spinning top, some women can have this spinning top with this dilated proximal urethra and narrowed area near the meatus, and that, that can be normal, but that's generally what you're gonna see is this, let me see if my, there you go. You get this spinning top here, this dilated proximal urethra, and then this narrow airing here. Now, if no contrast goes past, obviously it's a very bad stricture, but unfortunately you can see this in, um, in normal women as well, and it, it just makes getting an idea of the stricture location and length that much more challenging. Some other people have just uh, described endorectal coil MRIs. Um, they looked at 140 women with lower urinary tract infections and they found that about 52% had periurethral fibrosis. Um, it's typically in patients with obstruction and a 10% had urethral diverticula, but there was really no correlation observed between the subjective um, estimate of scar tissue during the urethrolysis and the surgery and the amount determined by the um, interpretation of images. So I don't know how useful this would be as a study, except for 
the one piece of it is if you want to rule out malignancy. So if you're really worried about or you're thinking about cancer or a diverticulum or something else going on, this is a good study to get. So as I mentioned, it has a wide um, differential diagnosis. So high tone pelvic floor dysfunction, detrusor underactivity, primary bladder neck obstruction, detrusor external DSD, um, urethrocarcinoma, urethrolyoma, um, fibroepithelial polyps. Um, one thing I did want to point out, because uh, this is different from men, and I think it's an important point, especially people who are at level one trauma centers. So for pelvic fracture associated urethral distraction injuries, these are much less frequent in women, but so for men, when this happens, you either put in your SP tube or if you can get a catheter in and you wait and you let everything scar down, you don't go in right then. For women, you actually do want to operate right away. So you want to do, if you can, a transvaginal anastomotic urethroplasty as soon as the patient is stable. So usually within two or three days of the injury, and that's because there are potentially so many complications if you don't fix it. So the risk of fistula is really high and that includes vaginal fistulas or um, uh, even potentially the rectum depending on what kind of injury they have. So I think that's just a really nice um, point to take away because this obviously isn't seen very often. Some other differential diagnosis, I've actually, just going with this kind of stricture slash outlet obstruction, I've seen a woman with some bulking agent that caused obstruction. Um, if they've had a history of mesh, you always wanna do, um, look for mesh erosion that's causing it. So this is a urethral lumen and here's the mesh obviously eroding in. And this is another time when doing that cysto and using your flexible scope and doing a very, very, um, diligent examination is really important because it can be subtle and difficult to find. Um, this was an interesting case um, of, it was an ingual hernia repair and the mesh had eroded and the coils had eroded into the bladder and the urethra. So you can see a little bit of a stricture with a coil behind it. That was an interesting case. Um, another one was, uh, this was a young woman, she had chondrosarcoma, so you can see it here really um, pushing on the bladder and then coming down, I believe her urethra is right about here, but it was a very interesting, so you can see this massive um, chondrosarcoma and again here, and here's the bladder and the urethra is having to go all the way around this. So she just is interesting cases, my fun time to do some interesting cases. This was the um, chondrosarcoma, which you see was quite large. And you can see the catheter coming in, and this is that big mass um, coming off of her pubic symphysis. And then afterwards, here's her bladder and her urethra. And this was a case I just wanted to highlight because I think, you know, as urologists, we get called in sometimes to do some pretty interesting things. And she was a young woman, and it was really pushing on her urethra, her bladder, her trigone was distorted, and her, I think it was her left ureter was also right there. So I put in stents at the beginning of the procedure, and actually I was really glad I did this. I did a transvaginal exam, and I was able to feel the stent like up against the, um, the chondrosarcoma. And so while we were dissecting the mass off, because we couldn't, it, like you had to go up and around and underneath, you didn't have a great view but I could still feel things transvaginally and almost use that to help guide my dissection. So sometimes you can get creative when it comes to these type of procedures with what you have to do. So general treatment, um, 
the female urethral anatomy has an inner longitudinal muscular layer, an outer circular muscular layer, and then the muscle thins out more distally. There's a rectile tissue um, of the clitoris, which supports the um, dorsal distal urethra. And then the neurovascular bundle of the clitoris runs below the pubic ramus in the midline. You have your urethral sphincter, of course. And then there's a perineal membrane, which is attaches laterally to the inferior pubic ramus as well. So some treatments, you can offer them self-intermittent cathing. Um, that may work for some women if they're comfortable with it. Um, repeated dilations, it may or may not help, and it can cause stress urinary continence if overly aggressive, and it can also make that stricture worse, so similar to men. Um, endoscopic treatment, of course, um, and then meatoplasty, which has a risk of spraying because you're opening that area up, but it can be really good for short distal strictures. Um, potentially, you could consider a ventral incision and re-anastomosis for very short strictures, not involving the meatus and you would basically do a longitudinal urethral incision and close it transversely. Um, it couldn't be too much of a thick, dense stricture because um, you can't mobilize the female urethra and get that mobilization. You can't, it couldn't be very long either. Um, excision and reanastomosis for severe spongiofibrosis, but that's gonna have a very high morbidity. And then open repair with tissue flaps or grafts. So the flaps, are, some people say flaps are treatment of choice, but now a lot of people are doing buckle grafts. So um, I know I'm running low on time, but um, I think this is important. And obviously you guys are being taught this because you're residents currently, but there was a nice study that was done in 1999, which just was evaluating the practice patterns and perceived efficacy of urethral dilation by a questionnaire. And essentially some people still use urethral dilation. About 61% said they use it for urethral syndrome and the other 30% were urethral stricture. But interestingly, 61% um, of urologists trained in the 90s reported never offering it for urethral syndrome, whereas 21% of urologists trained before 1990 felt it was very or extremely successful in treating urethral syndrome, and 0% um, trained after 1990 felt it was successful. So I think people are doing much less of this now, um, which is good because hopefully it will reduce the risk for uh, urethral strictures for women. Um, this was a study looking at urethral dilation with CIC. So it was a stricture of the urethra that was less than 14 French. Um, they dilated to greater than 30 French and had them do CIC um, one time daily, basically, with an 18 to 20 French catheter for six months. They only followed them for three to six months, and it was just seven patients, but they said none had recurrent stricture, um, but three required repeat dilations. There are a lot of different, this is just to highlight, there are a lot of different um, flaps and grafts. So this is the urethral dilation. And if you see, like most of these are gonna be very low volume, except for these that were published really early. So I'm not exactly sure what they were offering, but um, doing urethrotomies or meatoplasties. And we'll talk a little bit about vaginal inlay flaps. Oops, sorry. And then you can see these ventral buckle and dorsal buckle grafts. So flat-based urethroplasty demonstrated, it's, has demonstrated efficacy and safety. You want an overly sized flap because you'll have some contraction with healing and you want a good vascular pedicle. So some of the types can be a vaginal wall, which is well vascularized, freely mobile. And if you can imagine if you do an inverted U and then you open up your stricture, do you take that apex and flip it down to the apex and then kind of roll it back up? So like the top gets brought down, 
into the stricture and then it gets rolled up and in and then you close up over it if that makes some sense. Um, you can also use some labial skin that's been described. Um, the dorsal buckle graft, the most recent, one of the most recent studies was just in 2019. I was 39 women. Again, this is how rare this is. It was a multi-institutional study with six surgeons and the mean age was about 50. Most of the time the etiology is unknown, about 50%. Um, and 87% had gone a prior stricture related surgery. The mean stricture length was actually decently long, about 2.1 centimeters with only an 11 French caliber. They did follow them for a decent time. It was 33 months and there was I mean, these are tough to treat. So there's about a 23% stricture recurrence rate. And interestingly, the mean time to recurrence is about 14 months. Um, complications wise, there is no de novo urinary incontinence. Um, there's, when you do that dorsal, it's, it's um, an incision above the meatus and then you get into that plane. So there's that theoretical risk of bleeding and damage to the clitoral structure, uh, structures with neurosensory complications. Um, they do recommend it for more proximal strictures that may impact the continence mechanism. Ventral onlay buccal mucosal graft, um, and then they also use a Marcia's label fat pad interposition. So this was this uh, study came out in 2017. It was 22 women, similar mean age, about 50, and the um, median follow-up was about 21 months with a wide range you can see there. Um, this group obtained pelvic MRI to rule out malignancy beforehand. And again, the mean stricture length was about two centimeters. Um, they had a really good success rate. It was about 95% here. And one patient developed mild stress incontinence that reserve, um, sorry, that resolved with conservative therapy at six months. So just in summary, um, female urethral diverticulum are rare and the etiology is unknown with the periurethral glands as the site of origin. A thorough evaluation is required for surgical planning and to rule out other potential etiologies, including cystoscopy and imaging, preferably MRI if you can get it. There is a 10% malignant transformation rate. You wanna consider um, a pubovaginal autologous sling if it's indicated. It can have very challenging anatomy and complicated reconstruction. And then you wanna maintain that periurethral fascia for tissue interposition. Um, same with female urethra strictures. They're rare, they're difficult to diagnose, and treatment involves judicious use of dilation or flap clap graft urethroplasty. And this is my, just on a happy note, we did like a COVID fancy dinner party where I got my kids all dressed up and we ate at the dining room table just to keep <laughs> ourselves entertained during this. They look so cute and so <laughs> well-dressed. <laughs> Yeah, to do something every once in a while. <laughs> well, Dr. Ferris, thank you so much for that awesome overview. Um, I think, you know, female urethral stricture disease is something that we don't hear enough about. And just hearing, you know, the review of the literature and how you like to manage it is really helpful. Um, so, uh, and also thank you for tackling some of the questions earlier on. I think you get some time back for that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and so I, I think we've knocked out a few of these already. Um, and just as yeah. a reminder for everyone, please put your questions into the Q&A and we'll be sure to answer them, if not today, then at least on the website. Um, yeah. Please fill out our survey for evaluation as well. So let's get started. Um, one was a clarifying question about the urethral syndrome that you had mentioned um, in that study about um, you know, practitioners trained before and after the 90s. I'm not sure. Um, I, because I, it was not, I've tried to look it up a little bit too. I think it's more of, I have a feeling to be honest, 
most likely it's high tone pelvic floor dysfunction. And that's what was described as urethral syndrome. And now we have some other things and diagnoses to go along with it that we didn't necessarily know of before. I could be wrong, but it's not something I learned about in training. I don't know if you, if anyone else has an answer for it, I'm open to hearing it, but I think it's more of an um, historical diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Um, a question here about, um, you know, when, when you're doing a concomitant fascial sling for some of the, uh, di- going back to the urethral diverticulum, uh, do you ever worry about, you know, having the sling done at the same time and then later on potentially having a small risk of needing, you know, radiation or some other additional treatment to the area if cancer is found? I haven't encountered this scenario uh, specifically, but I wouldn't worry about it because I think if anything, the, you know, that it's good to have that tissue and that inner position layer. And then it shouldn't interfere with radiation because you're putting it over that area. It'll be in the field, but um, it's your natural tissue anyway. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, and then uh, you mentioned sometimes you get the MRI urogram or an MRI if you're worried about malignancy. Any role for cytology uh, during your workup? Do you ever send that? Yeah, if there's any concern, I think it's definitely reasonable to send um, a cytology, especially if there's anything, I mean, you could routinely send it when you do your cystoscopy. I think that's very reasonable. Um, the, I think I showed at the beginning, the histology is so variable with it, though, that it's, it's you know, hard to say if you'll get a positive result, and it's coming from the diverticulum, so it's not like you do a good bladder washing and you're necessarily going to have cells. I certainly don't think it would hurt. But to yeah. me, the MRI is like that, that's my go-to and yeah. a good physical exam. Okay. Sounds like a good idea for a research project. <laughs> um, all right. So we also have a question here about um, what is the mechanism of stricture development after prolapse surgery? I, I think it's just the scarring that, and fibrosis that would happen. Um, again, these are, I can't say exactly. Um, because of they're so rare but I think it's a theoretical risk of you're doing that dissection there and then if the mesh or whatever it is extended too far a lot of times they do um you'll do a sling at the same time I'm guessing it's just the scarring and also having the catheter in and there may have been some trauma associated with that I see okay um, and when it comes to urethral dilation, um, the paper you reviewed says, you know, dilate to 30 French and then, you know, keep it open with somewhere between 18 and 20. Um, is that your practice as well? I usually don't have them um, continue with CIC. Mm-hmm. I feel like I might give them a chance at a dilation once and then if that doesn't work, um, generally for some, it's, part of it is if it's an older woman, and she just doesn't want anything more aggressive. She's really happy with her dilations. And I'll go back and do some dilations. Mm-hmm. I guess if she was mm-hmm. comfortable doing a self-dilation occasionally, I'd be okay with it. But mm-hmm. usually I've kind of, I think personally, I've just taken a little, tried to take a little bit away from the guidelines for male urethral strictures, mm-hmm. where it's kind of like one endoscopic treatment. If that doesn't work, then it's time to move on because it's not mm-hmm. continuing on is not necessarily going to work. Now, patient preference matters. And it's the same exact thing with the male um, the male patients where, sorry, my computer's dying, um, where patient preference is a big piece of it. So if they don't, if it's an older person and they don't want a big surgery or they don't want to think about a buckle graft or something like that, you know, they may say, I'll just do dilations every once in a while. It's worked for me. Mm -hmm. 
Um, great. And um, any theory on why uh, you think that the ventral repair, buccal repair, may have higher success rates than the dorsal uh, buccal only repair? Um, do you think it's an issue of blood supply or, you know, just different centers reporting different outcomes? I think it's different centers reporting different outcomes. So I had a really nice um, talk at a meeting recently about how do you treat female urethra strictures. And I think, you know, it's, I know that people are researching this, but again, to extrapolate from the male population. So people like a dorsal inlay for people who like it. The reason they like dorsal inlay, so same idea as this with the woman, is that pubic synthesis is there. So you're gonna have, and that tissue's there. So you're gonna have a nice backing for your graft. It's gonna help to keep it open. I think they feel really good about that. Same with the men. So you've got that nice corporal body backing on it, as opposed to doing the ventral where the people who, the uh, people who criticize a ventral onlay mm -hmm. is that you put the sponge over it and in theory that graft if you think about you put the sponge over it and it's going to crumple up again right so mm -hmm. you don't because it doesn't have that firm backing to keep it spread apart mm -hmm. you know what that I think that's a piece of it and so my guess is that when the person I was talking to about it specifically was saying for the ventral side for women again like what kind of backing is mm -hmm. there mm -hmm. okay um, and then the preferred approach for female urethroplasty sounds like it's transvaginal. Yeah, or that dorsal incision dorsal. to, if you do the uh, dorsal, mm -hmm. the dorsal approach. Now, again, I think it's so much of it goes back to what are you comfortable with? So mm -hmm. if you're a female pelvic floor surgeon, you're very, very comfortable with flaps and that's like vaginal flaps and everything like that. And that's your go-to. Mm -hmm. I think it's a little like the male stuff. If, if you get, you feel like in your hands, those are your best outcomes. And I think, and it seems like the outcomes for the buckle grafts are relatively similar. And I think the vaginal flaps, just looking at the data is pretty similar. So I think using the approach that you feel the most comfortable with and that you think will give you the best outcome is reasonable at this mm -hmm. point until we, you know, it'd be like impossible to do a randomized trial on this almost because there's so mm -hmm. few, but. All right, a couple more questions here. It kind of sounds like uh, maybe inpatient consults that are coloring some of these. So yeah. um, if you're called about a woman who is in urinary retention um, and you end up doing a bedside dilation catheter placement, um, how do you follow them up? And uh, you know, how and when and if do you get your VCUG? Um, So I just keep extrapolating from the male side. So I do feel like the fibrosis is so important before doing your repair. So if you're thinking about, again, you have to have that conversation with them. I probably only leave the catheter in for a few days, just like our male colleagues, just like three days. And then, or sorry, not male colleagues, our male patients. And then I would think about around two and a half months, um, probably start to do my imaging as long as they're doing okay. And um, to get an idea of um, how long is the stricture, I'd get a cystoscopy and then um, a VCUG, most likely, Great. to help with operative management. Um, about an, uh, if someone has an abscess associated with a urethral diverticulum, um, would you operate early or would you let it cool down with antibiotics? 
Yeah, so to a certain degree, it's kind of always, I want to say always an abscess, but most of the time the stuff in there is purulent because it, it sometimes it's just cells, but I, that's why you want to get that UA and urine culture, and I want things to cool off a little bit and make sure that their urine was negative before, as much as possible before mm -hmm. doing it, and you may want to consider keeping them on antibiotics through your surgery to minimize risk for infectious complications. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Um, well, uh, I think that pretty much, oh, here's one. Um, all right, we'll take this last question. Uh, so when we're doing endoscopic, when you're doing endoscopic management of the usual stricture, uh, what is your technique? Do you go straight to dilation or would you ever make any incision like a cold knife um, laser? Um, I've generally done just dilation for women. Mm. Okay, yeah. cool, that sounds pretty straightforward. Okay, and out of my own curiosity, um, you know, kind of extrapolating also from the, the our male patients and their experience. Um, at what caliber stricture do you think in a woman it could be symptomatic? Because <laughs> great question. So, females' urethras are obviously much they have just a wider diameter than mm -hmm. male. Um, I would for men it's closer to eleven French is generally the what people say is around 11 French is when it can become um, symptomatic. Mm -hmm. And I, my guess is for women, I think the average from one of the studies, it was right around 11 French was the average uh, diameter. So I, it, I'm gonna venture to guess it's probably around there too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, cool. All right, well, we're at the top of the hour, but um, thank you, Dr. Ferris, so much for your time. We learned a lot from you. Thanks everyone. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.